Future Blue, making green waves. I'm Kerry Herford-Jones. And I'm Alexis Eyre. Thank you for joining us for today's podcast. Uh, this one's really interesting. We've got a couple of really good guests for you. And the first one is a New Zealander, Kath Taylor. Now, Kath is actually the Senior Programme Manager within the Business and Nature section of Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership. So her background is really interesting and it's a real passion of hers linked to a kind of love of nature and the outdoors that certainly would have come about from her time growing up in New Zealand. And we're going to find out a bit more about her when we hook up with her. But again, She's the kind of person that can really give us an insight, isn't she, Alexis? Yeah, so insightful. Despite all the topics that we've been covering, I think the one that seems to be put on the back foot quite a lot because there is a lot of focus on carbon, and rightly so, and on the circular economy and everything else. But the area that really is suffering and, and, and often forgotten about is biodiversity and the fact that we are losing it so quickly at sort of at such an exponential rate right now and how important it is that biodiversity is actually incorporated into business strategies going forwards because ultimately it's all of us that are going to be affected if we lose it. And uh, that's why I'm just so excited to have someone here today who actually can talk about how businesses can do it and why it is so important. Kath, thank you so very much indeed for joining us. My pleasure. Kath, the, the first question we always like to ask for these podcasts is, who is Kath Taylor? Tell us a little bit about yourself, if you would, please. Well, I'm from New Zealand originally, but I've lived in the UK now for nearly 20 years. And I've worked in the field of conservation and sustainability for over a decade now. And it's a real passion of mine linked to kind of a love of, of nature and the outdoors that I think came from growing up in, in New Zealand. And the sort of your route to where you are today, clearly you've learnt lots of things on the way. What's been your best experience to date? <laughs> I've had some fantastic experiences along the way. As part of my undergraduate degree, I got to spend six weeks in Indonesia learning to scuba dive and survey coral reefs and reef fish behaviour, which was just amazing. Since then, I've done field work in beautiful British woodlands and I've got to rub shoulders with some really amazing and influential UK sustainability leaders as well. So let's kick off with that very first question, setting the scene perspective of what is biodiversity? So biodiversity is the variety of life on earth. So it's the things that we think about, kind of the David Attenborough documentaries, the tigers, the dolphins, the ladybirds, the trees, the flowers, but it's also the habitats that they live in. And it's everything from tiny little microorganisms that live in our soils, but we also include things like the variety of DNA and genes that make up all these different species. So why is biodiversity so important to businesses and why do companies find it so hard to put a value on, on the importance of it? So the challenge that we have with businesses is that biodiversity is almost invisible to their bottom line. Mm. And this is because what they don't realise is that they do rely on biodiversity and it is fundamental to their businesses. I think the challenge is when we think about biodiversity, we think about the charismatic species. And so linking your business to things like uh, mountain gorillas seems a million miles off. But actually, there are millions of species that are helping to keep our world and economy functioning. It's the species that we rely on to produce our raw materials. 
So I mentioned sort of soil microorganisms, but of course, pollinators and bees are hugely important to our global food supply. And those are the tip of the iceberg because clearly the list goes on. Absolutely. I mean, there are things that we uh, rely on directly, like pollinators, but then there's also the sort of indirect dependence. Even if you have um, a physical asset like an office or a factory um, or a mining site, you're relying on biodiversity and the natural environment to help protect that asset to some degree. So maybe it's mangroves or river systems that are helping to reduce the frequency and severity of flooding events. So businesses have both a direct and an indirect dependency on biodiversity. What's the difference then between that direct and indirect reliance? So direct is is really when you're benefiting, I mean there's kind of only one step between you and biodiversity. We may think of it more like biodiversity that we harvest directly. So in you know the marine environment we are harvesting wild biodiversity all the time in terms of fish and shellfish. And you could also argue that things like ecotourism have a direct reliance on biodiversity. They're selling their business on the basis um, that you're going to go out there and see whales or dolphins or whatever it is. That indirect dependence is really crucial, but it's also the one that's quite hard to to demonstrate directly the value to a business bottom. So things like reduced flood risk or climate regulation or even things like healthy soils can feel a little bit more removed from a business's operations. So let's look a little bit more detail then about it from the business perspective, which you clearly have a good picture and a good handle on. What are the biggest negative impacts that businesses are currently having on biodiversity? So we know that biodiversity is in a terrible state. So for example, we know that there are around 1 million species that are currently threatened with extinction. And we've seen populations decline by about 70% since the 1970s. And you can link this directly to an increase in global economies and productivity and extraction. One of the biggest drivers is land use change. So that's sort of the loss of habitats. That's things like the deforestation in the Amazon or degrading habitats so that they kind of turn from shrublands into deserts. But we also have negative impacts through pollution and climate change as well. When you're talking about it from a business perspective and you're actually out there talking to business people, are they getting this? Is it starting to sink through, do you think? It's starting to. We sort of see biodiversity in nature has often been the poor relation to climate change on businesses' sustainability agenda. Yeah. So I think we're seeing much greater engagement with climate change action. Businesses are certainly starting to wake up to the risk of nature, risk of nature loss. For example, the World Economic Forum puts out every year its kind of risk assessment. What are the big threats to the economies that are coming? And in the last few years, nature and biodiversity loss has been right at the top of that list. So businesses are starting to realise that they need to take notice of the impacts that they're having on nature. and really start to formulate action plans about how they're going to play a role in reversing this kind of terrible decline that we're seeing in biodiversity. Big numbers you've been quoting there about losses already uh, since the 70s. If we carry on losing biodiversity at the rates you've quoted, what will the effect be on businesses in terms of the actual monetary value, do you think? Because that's where we need to sort of concentrate some thought on, don't we? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one of the challenges with biodiversity is we haven't historically included it into our economic systems. So it is kind of historically undervalued, but we do have ways of um, estimating the value that it generates. And so the World Economic Forum, for example, estimates that the value generated by nature is 44 trillion annually. Um, so that's what's at risk, basically. Right. <laughs> um, wow. If we that's continue big to erode, and <laughs> it's a big number. Yeah, absolutely. And for example, so the food, land, and ocean sector currently derives around 12 trillion in value from nature. But at the same time, those sectors only contribute 10 trillion to global GDP. So we're actually taking from nature more than we're adding to the global yeah. economy. Yeah, yeah. And that's a negative. We're going the wrong way. Yeah, absolutely. We're eroding nature. I mean, the balance sheet is, is definitely in the red. So listen, the world has turned on its axis since the beginning of 2020. And without spending a lot of time on, on COVID-19, it's clearly going to be on the agenda for years to come. But how is COVID-19 and biodiversity so interlinked? And, and how can we prevent more pandemics like this from happening, do you think? So I find it really interesting in my job, because as we've discussed, people often say it's difficult to demonstrate the financial materiality of biodiversity. But actually, where we find ourselves now is in one of the starkest demonstrations to date of the potential impacts of nature degradation. Yeah. yeah. And that's because COVID-19 is intrinsically linked to biodiversity loss. And that's biodiversity loss caused by business as well. If anywhere in your business or your supply chain, you're produced or mined or extracted or traded, financed or purchased a material that has come from an area where habitat has been lost. So that might be farming or it might be for an infrastructure project. Then you've had a role to play in making the possibility of pandemic more likely. And that's because when we lose habitat, we increase the interaction between people and biodiversity. And that's when we see things like new zoonotic diseases emerge. You have a way of actually making this sound in so many ways, so simple, the messages you're trying to get out there. What are the risks to businesses if they don't start incorporating biodiversity in their strategies? So we know that biodiversity loss can manifest as a key risk for business. And there's a number of different ways that this can drive impacts. So there's this systemic risk. So this is the big picture things like the pandemics, the climate change, the feedback loops from climate change driving more biodiversity loss. And in some ways, those are quite hard to engage with on a day-to-day. -day. But the reality is that it's also going to affect day-to-day -day operations. So a recent study, for example, has shown global reductions in the supply of crops related to the loss of wild pollinators. For example, the US almond industry spends huge amounts of money each year transporting in beehives each year into their almond orchards right. to pollinate their crops because they've completely obliterated all of the wild pollinators who would otherwise provide the service for free. That's almost shocking. It's so counterintuitive to what nature's bountiful supply had already given them. Yeah, absolutely. It makes no business sense. All of these yeah. negative effects that we are anticipating from future climate change 
like increased um, extreme weather events and flooding. That's all going to be exacerbated by the loss of nature. So that's not it, though. So then (laughs) we also have (laughs) the the reputational risks and the kind of the transition risk associated with consumers shifting their perception and how they hold companies accountable. We've all seen the news stories about the loss of orangutan habitat linked to oil palm, fires in the Amazon and, and things like oil spills. And no business wants to be associated with those things. No. And the, the challenge is that with increasing technology and satellite tracking and data, there is greater accountability for these companies as well. So I think we're going to see a trend of these impacts being more closely linked to companies and companies mm. needing to be uh, more accountable for them. We've come across this as a, a pretty recurrent theme through all the podcasts about who is driving change. And, and we have here a whole cohort now of millennials and, and others coming through now, almost in a way demanding change. Would you agree with that, Kat? Yeah, absolutely. The reality is that the economies that we have built have been at at the expense of the future of of these generations, of the world that we will live in. Mm. And I don't think that anybody wants to live in a world where there isn't a Great Barrier Reef or there are no mountain gorillas in the wild. I mean, that's not the world that I want my children to live in. No, absolutely. And especially if we have uh, a moral obligation and and it is our time to, to step up to the mark. Look, we've, we spent a bit of time there on the negative, and, and quite right too, because it sets the scene. But they're, they're, come on, give us some thoughts. Uh, where do the opportunities actually lie? Sure. With risk comes great opportunity. Yeah. And this is, again, how we often try to speak to business about um, how they can take the next steps forward. And there are scenarios where we can have a nature-positive world, which is not only good for the planet, but is also good for the economy. So the World Economic Forum, for example, has worked out that we could create nearly 400 million jobs by 2030 by embracing kind of a nature positive vision. Again, big numbers. Huge numbers. And I think in the face of COVID, we really have this opportunity now to to take a, a pause and rethink. And I mean, everyone's saying it, but Build back better, absolutely. Let's put the money on creating a more resilient future, which is going to mean our economy is not going to hopefully suffer the huge shocks from extreme events of which nature degradation has a part to play. And we're talking here about leadership because invariably it requires industry leaders, it requires governments to come on board and to actually start developing a business strategy. How does a business start developing a strategy that incorporates biodiversity? So there's no easy answer to this, I think, because it's going to be different for every company and it really has to be driven by the company's motivation. Why do they want to do this and and what are they hoping to achieve from it? Do they want to look at their own footprint and responsibility? Do they want to go beyond accounting for their own impact into something to to accounting for perhaps the historical impacts that they've had? Do they want to kind of have a net positive impact? Do they want to be part of a global transformation? Do they want to drive industry level change? So these are all things that a company really needs to 
think about before it can start building a strategy. And, and from that, you can start thinking about, yeah, within your company, what sort of decisions do you yeah. want to inform? Yeah. And who is going to be using the strategy? It, there's some good basic business building blocks there. I think what you're saying is that this is not just an add-on. This needs to be actually a fundamental part of any business strategy. Yeah, absolutely. And the challenge that we have is that for many organizations, this will still sit within their kind of their sustainability function or their, yep. their CSR. But really, our argument is that it needs to be systemic hmm. because the sustainability team only has so much traction. And if this doesn't have um, a sponsor at board level, if yep. your CEO isn't bought in, yeah. um, then it's really it's not going to have the impact that you need it to have. I mean, no. just basic things like does your finance team also need to consider nature on its balance sheets? Or does your procurement team need to look at impacts on nature when it's sourcing its products? Because the challenges that we see is we see quite big pledges, but then we see a lot of internal policies which are effectively in conflict with delivering <laughs> on some of these big goals. That's business. And that's the challenge. Uh, but like any strategy, we've laid out the clear-cut objectives. Uh, what are those clear objectives, Kath? So again, this really depends on the company. And one of the first steps when you're developing your own strategy is to undertake that materiality and impact assessment. So where are you having the greatest impacts on nature? If you're sourcing agricultural commodities, it's very likely to be um, through your deforestation footprint that you're driving. So you want to be committing to, at the very minimum, net zero deforestation. Yep. But actually what we're seeing is a lot of companies now starting to use the language of net positive impacts. Yep. So this recognition that net zero isn't going to cut it. No, I mean, no. biodiversity is in freefall decline. So just cutting your impact to neutral is not going to help reverse that decline. So we need regenerative approaches, net positive impacts on biodiversity and nature. That's a really good point. We've got to go the other way completely. We've got to be adding to the mix. So what teams do you find generally lead this strategy within the company? Who are the, the leaders within the business to make this happen? So I think this it still sits with the sustainability team yeah. generally. But what you really need is expertise because nature and biodiversity is not the same as climate. It's not the same as mm. carbon. For example, one tonne of carbon emitted in the UK is going to be the same as one tonne of carbon emitted in South America. But your impacts of operating in the UK on biodiversity is going to be very different from your impacts of operating in another country on biodiversity. Yeah. And you really need expertise within your organization that can understand that nuance that it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. We could talk for hours on this whole subject. It's fascinating what you're bringing to the table here. So let's think about some top tips for getting the best out of any biodiversity strategy that we might be able to put together. Key is to remain responsive and flexible because this is a new field for many people. Lots of us are taking baby steps in this space. At the same time, we new tools and uh, data sets that we can use are, are being developed all the time and new frameworks and guidance. The first thing to do is do something. 
But then it's really important that you're kind of evaluating that. You're evaluating, is your strategy having impact? Is it achieving the things that you set out to achieve? And if not, don't be afraid to go back and revise things to, to improve that impact and, and make use of experts in this space. Don't necessarily feel like you need to have all your answers in-house. And I'm a big um, proponent of transparency. So be transparent about your progress and the difficulties that you're having. And I think you'll find that there is a network of companies that want to work together to help find the solutions to these challenges. I think this has been a really important moment to just build that business case, really emphasize to people the um, urgency uh, that's needed to take action on biodiversity loss. And I think what COVID has shown us, and I think this is what gives me more hope, is how flexible and how quick to respond we can be when we put our minds to it. So I'm really hopeful that in the next year we are going to see greater commitment from governments, but at the same time we're going to see the business community because they're nimble. Mm. They can work faster than policy processes. And I think we're already seeing some of these big names taking on that challenge and making some of these big commitments. And I think that we're really going to start to see some delivery of those in the next few years. And so in 10 years time, I'm hoping that we have stopped this free fall decline of nature. And we're in a place that we are starting to restore things and get back into the black on those balance sheets. And it's all about setting out the goals. And Kathy, you certainly set out a few goals for us there today. Absolutely brilliant. I I hope you've enjoyed the podcast as much as we have. Yeah, it's been fantastic. It's been great to speak to you. As I said earlier, I mean, this is just such a dear subject to my heart. I'm, I'm obsessed by wildlife. I'm always the last one to come indoors on a holiday because I'll be outside hunting for something to look at. I just really want businesses to get on board with this we've done a fair bit of theory today i think it's important we try and balance that a bit with some projects that are actually genuinely making a difference and for those of us that do a fair bit of sailing and out life out on the water we'll have seen some of these projects or we'll have actually got a sense that some of these projects are actually in place and that's why i'm really intrigued by our next pair of guests talking about something under the title of the wild oyster project Now, our first guest for this particular subject is Celine Gamble, the project manager for the Zoological Society of London. Uh, She studied marine biology down in Cornwall and then fell in love with the UK coastline and the marine habitats that we have here in the UK, right up your street, Alexis. So really now trying really hard to work to protect them because they're in a pretty degraded state at the moment. And she and her team have actually secured some pretty impressive funding for this first part of their project. The other person that we'll be talking with in this interview is James Scott Anderson. He is the environmental executive for British Marine and he's been working closely with Celine on this project. He grew up sailing, then went into become a professional sailor, working on super yachts around the world. He eventually decided that he should probably come back to solid ground for a while and work for some luxury boat builders and has now become so passionate about the environmental issues and is really leading the way at British Marine. So we're really looking forward to actually having a conversation with both of them about this Wild Oyster Project. 
Without further ado, our first guest, Celine Gamble. Uh, Celine, good day and thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you very much. You've launched a project. You've already secured some very impressive funding. Let's start with what is the Wild Oyster Project? Yeah, so the Wild Oysters Project is an exciting new marine habitat restoration project. It's basically in collaboration with the Zoological Society of London, the Blue Marine Foundation and British Marine. We've basically been awarded £1.18 million of funding raised by the players of the People's Postcode Lottery. So the funding will be used to set up oyster rehabilitation hubs in England, Scotland and Wales. Essentially we'll be um, installing oyster nurseries into marina sites and an oyster nursery is basically a bit like an oyster maternity ward uh, suspended underneath marina pontoons with a bunch of mature oysters so that with them at an age where they can release baby oysters into the system. And then we'll also be restoring the seabed. So we're going to be providing a suitable home for those new baby oysters to settle on and grow. And then we'll be using the project and these oyster nurseries as basically a tool to engage with local coastal communities in the areas that we're working in, with the overall aim of the UKCs to have self-sustaining populations of native oysters once more, which in turn provide us with all those kind of clean water, healthy fisheries, biodiversity and kind of reconnecting people with a kind of an appreciation of this iconic species, really. Incredible project. But clearly you're needing to work with partners like MDL, like Premier, all the big marine operators. They're going to need to come on board with this partnership and this project, aren't they? We kind of need to diversify our partnerships in order to have that wide scale impact. And I think the, the kind of beauty of our partnership with British Marine is kind of having that access to these marinas. So providing that space for nature that previously mm. we didn't have access to. So, yeah, I think having a kind of new way of thinking and kind of new collaborations can really boost on that national and bigger scale that we're really after. Clearly, you're hugely passionate about this project, but I have to ask the, the basic question is, why oysters? Why are you doing this? What's your drive personally for this? So I think my drive is basically that oysters, um, at, at the face of them, you know, they're not the most charismatic of marine species, <laughs> I'll admit, even though obviously I work on them, I'll admit that they're not the best looking of species. <laughs> I do like the fact that they're pretty humble. So whilst they're mm. small in size, they're capable of making some huge changes to our kind of marine environment and therefore they're recognized as ecosystem engineers so a single oyster can filter around 200 liters of seawater per day and when you think of the hundreds of oysters and hundreds and thousands of oysters that come together when it forms a reef you can start to picture how they're capable of vastly improving our coastal water quality and also clarity so they basically feed on those suspended sediments and really clean up our waters which is amazing so they provide a home for other marine wildlife so provide shelter and food for example for species such as birds and also charismatic species like seals or seahorses we need to provide that home Mm. and that kind of um, infrastructure for those more kind of loved and charismatic species to feed on as well so i quite like that a bit of a humble oyster unsung superhero and um, (laughs) keeping our oceans healthy and resilient you can hear it in every syllable you utter what are you hoping (laughs) then to achieve from this project what are the main touch points just to give you a picture on kind of nationally oysters are now pretty much functionally extinct across europe in the uk they've declined by 95 percent for a range of different factors but essentially this project is wanting to work together to restore life inspire action and Mm. achieve systems change what i mean by that is we want the project to kind of 
get us on the road to rewilding our seas. We want mm. to restore the function of native oysters in the UK, like I said, which in, in turn provides us with all of those fantastic ecosystem service benefits. Mm. Also, when I mentioned Inspire Action, you know, these oyster nurseries provide us with a fantastic engagement tool, which provide us with a window into the ocean that not everyone has. Working in these coastal communities, we can get schools, get local communities down and literally physically bring up this oyster nursery onto the pontoon and people can see all the fantastic wow. kind of creep you know critters that engage with it so um you know crabs eels that kind of thing and basically reconnecting people with nature and hopefully what my kind of gear of success will be is inspiring that next generation of marine mm. stewards yeah it, it, and you're absolutely right of course it's about engagement but getting them early that's the point now um You've just announced uh, through a press release uh, that you've got one point, over 1.18 million uh, from the People's Lottery. Where's that money going to go? What's the priority list look like? Yeah. So first and foremost, the funding will be used to set up those rehabilitation hubs with the oyster nurseries on the pontoons, collaborating with two marinas in each site. But also a lot of the funding is also going towards developing an extensive educational outreach and communications um, kind of program. So we're aiming to reach over 12,000 students over the three years of the project. Wow. And also reach over 50,000 members of the general public through public events, volunteering mm. opportunities, and kind of we're, we're creating these oyster gardening workshops where volunteers can come and help us care for those nurseries. So that's when it'll really, you know, people will be able to get hands on and actually kind of have a little bit of a personal buy-in to that yeah. project. Yeah. And then also finally, it's kind of securing that longevity of the project so we're, we're really hoping that this project will provide that proof of concept mm. in terms of um, that it was worth that initial investment and, and then kind of building upon that and showing people that we've successfully set up the project and we've achieved all of this, kind of achieve that legacy and long term funding of the project as well. We're going to talk in a moment to representative from British Marine, but it is about what the stakeholders themselves will benefit from this project. So from your point of view, what, what will people like? British Marine, who they represent, what will they gain from being part of this exciting project? So in addition to the 50,000 members of the public that will be engaging with the project, I'm also thinking of the benefit to the local coastal communities we're working in. So in terms of rejuvenating and, and providing them with a healthy marine environment, which in turn we've seen increases well-being and access to nature as well. Um, and the project, like I said previously, will also provide education and outreach opportunities, mm. which I really think that nature lovers, getting people involved is a really beneficial thing. But in that kind of more long term aspect, in terms of commercial fishes, for example, we see increased commercial oyster catch and fish catch in areas that have oyster restoration. So that's been demonstrated in areas such as Australia and the US. Mm. But then also thinking about the marinas that we're working with, they've got the opportunity to be part of a flagship. They're going to be these flagship sites for this sure. new um, exciting collaboration between marine conservation um, NGOs mm. and industry. It will provide them with learnings and mm. kind of takeaway messages and also a way to inspire perhaps other marina sites nearby to perhaps be involved with collaborating with marine conservation NGOs for future projects. And as is often the case, it's starting somewhere. So what needs to change in order for biodiversity restoration to happen at a greater scale? In other words, this isn't just the start. This is something long term. We need to secure more funding. So I would say that funding is a big barrier. As you can see, 1.18 million is providing us with funding for a project for three sites for three yeah. years. Yeah. But in the next year or so, we're looking for that kind of future funding streams. But also there is another element that the licensing and permitting process, so all the kind of due diligence, 
the kind of setup of these projects is very hard and quite time consuming and it can be quite expensive. So at the moment, it's not that facilitative. So we want to see a more favorable process, okay. a new project to make an impact. And that's something that we need help from the government and also government agencies and, and kind of nature conservancies to, to help us with really, because sure. it can take a lot of effort to set up these new projects. It is also uh, about, once you've started this rolling, it's about getting more partners on board. You've already alluded to us on a number of occasions, but clearly the government does have a major part to play in this because this isn't one small scale project. This is a huge project and, and an international one at that. Exactly. And, and thinking of the 25 year environment plan and you know what we're trying to achieve, these projects can really go a long way in helping the government achieve those goals and achieve the kind of scale mm. of restoration and conservation that we're trying to aim for. Our second guest on today's podcast is James Scott Anderson. And James, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Uh, delighted to be here. One of the main goals from our series of podcasts on this is about businesses in the marine industry specifically helping with protection and restoration. What's your clarion call to others in the marine industry who have yet to, to be connected with this project? The clarion call would be that there's a huge amount of change going on and there is a great deal more social awareness and consumers and people are now looking for demonstrations of environmental social governance and positive environmental contributions when they're actually looking and shopping for uh, for anything from cars to services to holidays i think it averages out at 65 percent of consumers are looking for that so it's not only going to benefit the marine industry in the longer term but it's also responding to what the uh, consumers are asking for that's an interesting statistic in itself, and that clearly is only going to grow if it's 65% at the moment as the next generation comes through. And from your point of view, representing your members' interests, it's vital to get these messages across for the future of the industry and for the future, of course, of those that's, it affects in terms of the greater environment. What's important, from your perspective, that businesses take more responsibility and get more connected to these kind of projects? Yeah, I, I think it is, because obviously you can't, the environment itself, it's our planet and it's, you know, it is a huge thing with over 7 billion people on and we're not going to achieve a global impact unless we get participation involvement on every single level mm. and from every single sector. And that can be as small as just one person buying a water bottle that they can refill to a company that is looking at its packaging or its transport or using more uh, sustainable materials. It's also very beneficial to the businesses themselves because mm. when it comes to resources and materials, they're obviously limited. We don't have an unlimited supply of natural resources of in the world. And it's massively important that we're looking at things like alternative materials and recycling and upcycling mm. in order to keep the global supply chain of materials and resources mm. available for the future. In a way, it's almost basic stuff, but it's still repeat. And you and I were talking earlier about this whole principle of marginal gains. From your perspective, the biodiversity strategies that many companies are starting to think about, they, they add into that mix partnerships with NGOs, not-for-profits, etc. Why are they starting to get that? What is it that's triggered them to start to think that way? I think a lot of it is awareness. About a year and a half ago, when David Attenborough said single-use plastic 
is becoming a huge problem for the oceans. Suddenly the whole planet set up and went, whoa, it's got to be part of the whole. Yeah. And because we have the technology and there is the information and the resource to incorporate change into the business model. And obviously the big advantage that NGOs and charities have is that the way that they're financed, they obviously have lower rates of tax. Some of them don't pay sort of VAT. So partnering with NGOs and charities and, and operations like the Wild Oyster Project allows companies to have a very direct impact working with people who are experts in their field mm. and it's allowing that resource to be used to the maximum effect because a business on its own might not necessarily be able to get as much bang for its buck but sure. if you partner with an NGO or a charity that's specifically doing something mm. you're going to have a great deal more impact mm. and hey listen you're pushing against an open door from this point of view but it, it is about stretching the imagination of the leaders I and mean, we it starts with somebody setting the agenda what what were benefits would the marine businesses get from incorporating biodiversity protection and restoration into their strategies do you believe if you go down to a beach or if you go snorkeling and you see sand and a few stones, that's not gonna do much for your kids. If your kids are snorkeling and they see seahorses and crabs and sea anemones and fish, they'll get incredibly excited and they'll go home and they'll tell everybody about it. And then they'll come back to see them again. And on a larger scale now, globally, there is this thing which is being called social environmental governance. A lot of funds and investors are looking for companies and businesses that are investing in biodiversity and actually trying to make a genuine environmental impact mm. can be up to can be up to 17% higher. And that's a substantial differential. You've got a couple of marinas already signed up to this. How do you get more to make that commitment? What's the strategy from your point of view? So partially, I mean, one very positive thing about the project is that all six marinas who signed up really really enthusiastic about the project they can yeah. see the benefits and they want to be involved this project will allow other marinas and businesses to see what it can achieve mm. and it'll allow them to see what positives there are in participating in projects like this in the future yeah. um, and how it could possibly benefit their sort of businesses we have something on we have an organization called the green blue which is the environmental awareness run by british marine and the RYA and last year i set up something called the green blue business directory which is for products or services that are genuinely making an environmental impact okay they range from people who are making enzyme and plant-based cleaning materials right. that have no environmental impact but do the same job to people yeah. who are making filters for onboard systems which are basically the equivalent of having an oyster on your boat 24 7. right to be able to have enough people to start a directory of products and services is something that we couldn't have done four or five years ago. I've just finished writing a national environmental roadmap okay. for British Marine, which is laying out our strategy for the marine industry from now until 2050. And it's going to give people the awarenesses and the resources and look at how that's going to be funded and how mm. research and development is going. It's critical stuff and I think to have something that goes up to 2050 is an incredibly important living document since you've announced the initiative since you've got already six marinas on board what feedback are you getting for those marinas it, it, it is too early at the moment and part of that is due to covid uh, we've obviously just come out of an incredibly difficult six months yeah. for the country yeah. and the actual oyster scheme itself is not getting put in place in the marinas until early November okay. I think a lot of people look at 
environment and environmental impact and think this is so huge how can we poss possibly make a difference mm. and what we have here with the wild oyster project and with the involvement of the british marine and the blue marine foundations edsl <clears throat> is that we're, we've actually created something here that could be a game changer for the world it's an opportunity to seriously restore biodiversity and the quality of water that could be done in every ocean in the world it is a world-changing opportunity and people say to me you know you can't change the world and yeah. what we're proving here is to say well actually you can yes and this project is a first really solid step that for the first time is involving industry and science and charity and ngos all combining together working to actually create something extraordinary I think it's absolutely brilliant. Celine, let me bring you back in, if I may. This partnership, clearly not only critical, but also successful. You must be very pleased with where you are so far. Really pleased. Just thinking about all the kind of new audiences that we can reach through this unique partnership. You know, with ZSL and Blue Marine Foundation, we do a lot of public outreach. But actually, you know, having British Marine on board and being able to reach a whole kind of different industry and audience of people, I think, is really exciting for this project. Fantastic. And James, from your point of view, you now know an awful lot more about uh, wild oysters than, than you knew before, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And, and for me, one of the really great things about being involved in a project like this is I do start to understand more about the science yeah. and how water columns works and biodiversity. And that makes it much easier when I'm looking at the industry and how we can bring in solutions and how we can make a more positive impact. Are the marinas going to be educating birth holders on why they should be choosing UK work. The really important thing is that you can't tell people to be environmental. The way that you're going to get change is to is for people to choose. And so mm. obviously through the project, we'll be raising the awareness. And a lot of the marinas have facilities in place already, things like pump out facilities and so on. But you can't dictate to people to be environmental. So obviously one of the aims of the project is that because there'll be the oyster beds on site and the awareness level that be higher that people might think a little more mm. about what mm. they're using to clean their boats or they might think you know what i'm going to put a field system in or mm. i'm going to i'm actually going to get involved and i come down to one of the educational and awareness days and i'm going to bring my kids down so you need to get people to join because they want to and they appreciate the benefits it won't be a case of you must do this who doesn't love oysters after that our little superheroes of the oceans and I learned so much about them and about this project because this project they're putting now into place genuinely is going to be huge. This has got legs. I think it does. And I think that I sort of mulling over and I think there's two really big points that have come out of this. Firstly, in, in connection with another episode that we've got live around partnerships, it really is showing the power of partnerships and what can really be achieved when you all start working together. I think you're pretty passionate about this, Alexis. <laughs> I'm uh, so passionate. <laughs> I can hear it in every syllable you utter. Oh, so so listen, some great guests again today. We've had three really interesting people that we've been able to talk to and there are more to come. So many more to come. I mean, where to begin? I just can't, can't wait. Future Blue, making green waves. Directed by Alexis Eyre and produced by Kerry Herford-Jones.